the Canadian investor. What's going on? Today's show is very exciting. I had the opportunity of sitting down in person with Barry Schwartz, the executive vice president and chief investment officer at Baskin Wealth Management. Barry's positive outlook on the markets is very refreshing. And it's a pretty funny story how Barry and I met downtown Toronto. And we talked about that in the podcast. Simon is not with us this week. He is moving into a new home. So congratulations, Simon. But we will see him on our next episode. He'll be back. Without further delay, this is my interview with Barry Schwartz. Very good to see you again because... I have to tell the story. Sure, please. It's a good story. <laughs> it's a good story. Yeah. So I'm actually live in in the room right now with Barry, and this is the second time we we're able to meet. Or I guess the third. third it's we, our third. It's meeting. our third meeting. So um, I have always watched Barry's segment on BNN Market Call, and I kid you not, if you start typing BNN's website, it'll just autofill to search Barry Schwartz. Awesome. I always watch his videos, and we're out one night with my friends at a art festival called Nuit Blanche downtown Toronto and we were walking through one of the I think it's kind of weird all of it but we're walking through one of the art displays and there's Barry curious like what did your family have to say when well, they I, was there, I was there with my wife and yeah. another couple we were at, we had gone out for dinner and we said hey let's check out the Nuit Blanche there's some crazy amazing art by the way so my, yeah. my wife always gets a kick out of it right I she's always smiles from ear to ear when people come up to me and say I see you on TV and everybody's always friendly yeah my best story is a bathroom story <laughs> at uh, Pearson Airport in Toronto some guy you know I'm doing my business he's doing his business looks over at me and goes you're barry from bnn i'm like yeah he goes national bank stock's been doing really well because <laughs> like, you're always talking yeah about exactly so or another time we we're in calgary and some guy chased me and david baskin down he's like are you guys what are you doing in calgary and can you tell me what i should do with manulife stock so I, it's always fun. I, I love talking about stocks. I'm very passionate about investing. And, you know, people come up to me and tell me that they like what we're doing. We're always happy to chat. Because David has a segment, you know, every once in a while, just like you as well. Absolutely. Right? So David has been doing BNN now for 20 plus years. Wow, Pretty much okay. when I started at Baskin, that's when David started doing BNN. And I started doing it, I guess, about 10 years ago, right after the financial crisis. They're looking for some new faces. They'd moved to new studios and have been doing the market call ever since. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to do. Braden, I, I, I like doing it mostly for me. Because when I'm on it, I can prepare and focus and talk about the economy and the companies, but I'm researching them and I'm, I'm paying attention and I'm, I'm spending time formulating my thoughts. So for sure, our clients like it. For sure, it's great for business. We've gotten a, a number of new relationships from it. For, for me, it's, it's, it, I do it for myself. Well, that's, that's really awesome to hear. And I personally love the segment. And the reason for that is your outlook on the market is very refreshing. I find in financial news, they just want to sell the bad stuff because there's really not that much happening day to day <laughs> in financial markets. Yeah. Um, and your long-term view of high quality companies will continue to do well. And I swear by that as well. So I just really appreciate your outlook. And when did you start to formulate that idea that no matter what's happening, you know, good companies do well. Yeah. Well, my history in investing is is kind of backwards a little bit because I started out and, and got 
very lucky, very lucky, and, uh, and I was extremely successful investing, but doing all the wrong things, right? So I started out uh, working at CI Mutual Funds in 1998. That was my first job after business school, and I started working as a trust accountant. And I don't have to go into the gory details about what a trust accountant does, but uh, suffice it to say that. I had to do reconciliations, data entry, and I had to have my reconciliations complete by 4 p.m. Uh, every day. The good news is I was able to have them done by 10 a.m. And my supervisor didn't know, so I pretty much had the rest of the day to do whatever I liked. And this was 1997, 1998, the dot-com era. All those stocks were going straight up. I managed to save a little bit of money, and I started investing. And I was able to turn $10,000 of bonuses and savings into $100,000 of dot-com stocks. And by the summer of 2000, uh, then I got married and my wife and I were looking for a house. So cashed out, used the money to for a down payment. Braden, if I had stayed in, you know, one month later, I would have lost all that $100,000. So got lucky, thought I was a genius, told my wife I'm going to stay home and day trade and uh, work from home in my pajamas because I'm a genius. And then, of course, it all blew up. And I guess I needed to get a real job. And that's how I started at Baskin. But uh, I've been formulating my investment approach with David over, over the years, right? And we're always learning and refining and trying to understand uh, where Baskin, what our, what our competitive advantage is. And so we always say that there's, there's got to be something to buy. And we've seen over the years that those that sit in cash or wait for the market to go down, A, never pull the trigger and B, never know when to get back in. So we've decided stay invested. Doesn't mean you always have to stay invested in stocks. You can diversify your portfolio, but we, we don't sit around in cash and that's worked to our advantage. And I think uh, that's been our successes uh, in terms of asset allocation. As for refining our investment approach, it's taken us a long time, but we've decided that high quality companies are the way to go. That makes complete sense. And, you know, over the last couple of days, there's this absolute freak out yesterday uh, around the new coronavirus and people are selling Chinese mm-hmm. stocks and yeah. it's just, it's craziness. It's craziness. So what do you, what do you recommend to investors, Canadian investors, whatever it may be, distancing themselves and focusing on what really matters? So Braden, there's always going to be a reason not to invest, right? So remember January, I thought the U.S. was going to have a war with Iran. Remember last year, worries about trade war, impeachment, uh, recession, uh, you know, it's an endless list and you can always look back in hindsight and say, damn, I should have got back in or I should have put, put my money to work. So we always take the approach, let's just stay invested unless I would say the only reason to get out of the market is either A, you need money for a short term uh, liquidity needs, right? You look at me in the summer of 2000, I needed the money to buy a house. That was dumb if I would have left it in the market because I would have lost it all. So if you have short-term liquidity needs, get out of the market. Or if you're close to retirement or near your retirement, and then your opportunity cost changes because you're going to need that money to live off. So you, you need to reposition your portfolio. But if you're a young investor uh, and you're decades away from retirement, Stay the heck in the market, but don't follow what I did, you know, in 1998 by buying stupid stuff Buy high. I, I mean, I just imagine had if David and I were smart enough to buy the Berkshire Hathaways and, you know, the visas, 
you know, 10, 15 years ago instead of buying them three to five years ago, how, how much better our portfolio would have been. Instead of trying to buy cheap stocks sticking to high quality companies, I think that would have been the right approach. So we smartened up. We started doing that six, seven years ago. And I think that will continue going forward. I think that's really, really important that you bring that up because when I started investing, I was constantly looking at value traps mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of new investors will. And the reason for staying with high quality growth, but usually growing companies is you say, oh, it would be better if I owned them 15 years ago, but you're still happy to owe them three years ago. Correct. And you're still happy to owe them that, own them now. Yeah. And I think that's the really important takeaway is that you don't have to buy, you know, these companies at IPO. I mean, mm-hmm. when did Warren Buffett buy Coca-Cola? Probably not at near IPO. And he's done remarkable on that. So I think that's really important. I think you need a few good insights into the company. I don't, I've never done a discounted cash flow in my life. <laughs> For those who don't know what a discounted cash flow is, that's, you know, a way to value a company by coming up with variables and doing a lot of Excel modeling work. And it's boring, boring as hell. But, uh, you know, my approach is, we have a checklist of companies that we're looking for. And then the final one is, can we buy it at a reasonable valuation? And, and that that's a meaningful and meaningless statement because what does that mean? You know, it means something to every, it means something different to every investor, of course. But I'll give you an example, right? Uh, shares of Visa, right? One of the world's greatest companies, Visa and MasterCard, IPO'd, I think, in 2007 or 2008, right before the financial crisis. Had you bought it at IPO, you might be up like 30 thousand percent or some crazy amount (laughs) right but uh we bought it i i think in 2012 2013 it was expensive the pe multiple at that time was 25 times earnings well guess what here we are six or seven years later it's still trading at 25 times earnings but the earnings have grown as fast as or faster than the pe ratio so uh the insight is if the earnings are growing there's organic revenue growth the company can continue to reinvest those earnings and continue to grow its moat. You got to stay invested in that stock, and and don't be you know don't be uh, quick to sell. That's you know uh, hopefully we'll talk about a number of lessons that I've learned over my career. But uh, the the Peter Lynch saying is uh, yeah, don't cut the flowers and you know you know don't cut the flowers cut cut the weeds water the flowers and that and that should be the case when it comes to investing. Yeah, and I actually think about this all the time right when I first convinced you to let me come to your office and yeah. meet you after our, our run in at uh, the art show was I think literally the first thing you said to me was don't sell winners yeah I tell all the guys around my office is why are you so quick to lock in profits and sell winners mm-hmm. Wait, I, I really I, I think that's a really powerful thing because I mean if you thought in 2010 or, or, or 2004 sorry that or apples at crazy all-time highs, you'd be up 15,000%. That's right. So I think value investors always think about if I can buy it at 10 times earnings and I can sell it 15 times earnings, I'll be a happy man. But growth investors or growth at reasonable price investors think if I can buy this at 25 times earnings and this company will grow a double-digit earnings growth for 10 years, I'm going to make a fortune and I don't have to worry about what multiple I pay. So there's a great chart floating out there and maybe we can link it uh, later to the to our audience in terms of companies that generate high returns on invested capital and the returns that happen from these companies over the long term and 
If you stick with them and they keep generating above average return on invested capital and they have organic revenue growth, and we can go through a few, a few of those companies, your returns are going to be unbelievable, right? So the famous Charlie Munger quote is, you know, over time, a company's uh, percentage growth of its stock price is going to earn its return on equity or return on invested capital, give or take. So if you have a company that's compounding its earnings at 15% a year, the stock price should grow 15% a year, give or take, right? Not every year, of course. Uh, if you come, and even if you pay an enormous multiple, right? If you're afraid, I'm not buying stocks at 30 times earnings. I'm only going to stick to 10 times earnings. Uh, you know, if it's growing at 15% a year for 10 years, it doesn't matter what multiple you pay. So I, I, I've been in that value trap uh, part earlier in my career, of course, right? I, and it's too hard because you don't know when to get in. You don't know when to get out. Um, generally, those companies that are trading at low multiples have are in a structurally declining business. Their revenues are going down. Their balance sheets are poor. And so you're waiting for some catalyst. And I figured it's just too hard for me. I, I'd rather just buy companies that are growing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we talked about this before, too, that deep value is just incredibly hard. And there may be merit to it. I get it. You're buying companies inherently discounted to their their intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. However, if you're entering a bunch of positions with companies that have declining revenues, I just don't think that's the pond you want to be fishing in generally when there's so many amazing businesses out yep. there. Right, right. So I recently read a book uh, that said uh, they believe there's only 60 to 80 great companies out there in the world out of the investable universe of not all, you know North America and Western Europe. Uh, you know, there must be 15,000 listed stocks. So if you're lucky enough to grab one of those 60 or 80 names, you've got to be a fool to sell them. So obviously, we're managing money here for families and, and institutions, and we care a lot about the downside. So for us, we do trim names. We, we don't like to let a stock get more than, you know, a certain percentage in the portfolio, uh, something, you know, if we're lucky enough to buy a stock and it doubles, triples, quadruples, uh, and it gets to 9 or 10% of the portfolio, that makes us nervous because we're here for capital preservation. Our clients work hard for their money. They're, they're, you know, they're doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, and uh, they don't want to see the portfolio drop. So prudent portfolio management is, is something that uh, we care about deeply. But you know, for an individual investor, uh, you know, that's where you can have sometimes the advantage over the, you know, the guys, the pros that are getting paid for it in the sense that you're not forced to trim. You're not forced to sell a winner. And uh, I urge you, if you have a great company, don't sell. Now, of course, you know, there's a difference between a great company and a great stock, and and uh, that can be uh, that that can be the difference in your portfolio, right? What's a great company, and, and maybe we can go for a few examples versus what's a great stock, just because the stock price keeps going up. Yeah, so let's let's break out into. I'm very excited about this because I'm such a fan of his market call segment that we're going to go through a couple companies. Mm -hmm. But just before we go through some of these names, a lot of these are really really solid companies. And something I wanted to bring up was back in 2013, 2014, I thought Big Fang Tech was just outrageously expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how are we buying these stocks at 50 plus times earnings? I don't get it type of thing. And now the earnings have caught up to them. It's like Facebook in particular is just like their income statement is just, mm -hmm. it's too good to ignore. And I, I, I wanted to ask Barry because his outlook on tech is very, very optimistic yeah. um, on these quality companies. So 
I just wanted to to touch on that. On what is what is your take on that, and and how did your opinion change on them over the last couple of years? Yeah. So our entry into tech was we had made the initial purchase of Apple for clients in 2012. We, uh, we bought Microsoft in 2013. Then we also the same year also bought Google in 13. Then we got more comfortable with tech and finally bought Facebook in, I think, 16 or 17. Now we bought Amazon in 2019. Should have bought that one sooner. And I guess really the only big one we don't own is Netflix. But I got to tell you, it's it's a very interesting business model. The It's hard for us because there is no reasonable valuation on Netflix because there's no earnings. Uh, or the earnings are there, but there's no free cash flow. And free cash flow for me is very important. But uh, the dynamics of Netflix business model and the scalable uh, possibilities of Netflix has got me pretty excited. So um, how did we get into them? I, I, we started thinking about the size of the markets that these companies could address. And we started thinking outside our comfort level, outside of we're Canadian investors and start thinking about the world, right? Uh, we. We do want to own companies outside North America. We'd love to get exposure to China and love to get exposure to Europe. But, you know, it's, it's hard for us to um, take the currency risk, the country risk, uh, the accounting risk. And so we decided let's get exposure by buying companies in North America that have significant growth and potential outside. So I mean, Facebook, unbelievable. Two billion users. Is there a company that has... You know, and a similar scale that matches it. Can you think of anyone in your opinion? Not two billion. No, no. that's insane. Right? Yeah. Insane. Right? And all of its plat. Uh, I posted something the other day on Twitter. I copied it from someone saying that uh, for Facebook, in for example, Nigeria, half the population thinks Facebook is the internet. Right? They don't know the difference. And that so, is wild. Yeah, it's amazing. And when you think about two billion, mm-hmm. think about the amount of people that don't have an emerging markets have internet yet. Yeah or even electricity for that fact in emerging right. markets. So that is very impressive. Yeah, the a lot of companies are scared about Amazon, right? What's the Amazon risk? Is Amazon gonna get into my market? Are they gonna disrupt retail? Are they gonna dis- now they're disrupting FedEx. Uh, next they're gonna disrupt pharmacies, right? Uh, and grocery, but the one people should be really worried about is Facebook. Two billion users and growing and uh, you have no idea what they're thinking about and what they're trying to break into, whether it's, you know, video gaming, whether it's uh, streaming, right? They want to get into their, uh, whether it's, you know, online shopping, there's still so much potential for Facebook. So that's what has got me excited about these companies is the potential. Sure, I can buy Bell Canada, right? It's, I'll, I'll get a nice fat dividend every year, but what does a company grow at? GDP? Is there any pricing power? Maybe they get uh, the ability to raise internet pricing once a year. Uh, you know, obviously we all use our cell phones every day, so no no risk of them losing business. But highly competitive. Uh, you know, that's that's a fine business in an income portfolio, but in a growth portfolio, you got to think bigger. You got to think scalable markets. You got to think long runways and uh, of potential, and not only long but wide. Right? Not just uh, the product appeals in Toronto or appeals in Halifax, but appeals. North America, Europe, Asia, and that's what I'm thinking about when we we started buying Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft. And I got to tell you, obviously they've done tremendous, but I don't think they're expensive. And I I think that the potential of them going forward is is unbelievable, especially Facebook. 
Yeah, no, that, those are really good points. And I like how you brought up that these are North American companies, but with global exposure. So it's not like you have to buy them in foreign currencies um, and take on that geographical political risk yeah. when these businesses do, you know, revenue all over the world. Absolutely. So let's get into some of these names before we talk more about those big tech names in the U.S. We're going to talk about two Canadian names. And the first one is Canada Goose. Give me your thoughts, Barry. Yeah, Canada. Well, so I don't own a Canada Goose jacket, so I can't really uh, tell you if I like the product or not. Obviously, I've seen the lineups in Yorkdale Shopping Mall, and it's a high-end luxury brand, and you know they have a pretty good uh, reputation. Obviously, a t- terrific Canadian success story, which we love. Uh, the problem that I have is it's fashion, and so for for. Obviously, I wish I would have gotten in the Lululemon because I also said that about Lululemon. It's a fashion. What idiot is going to pay $120 for a golf shirt? Well, you're sitting across from an idiot. Me. Not, not you, but me. I'm wearing all Lululemon yeah, head to toe. That's all I wear too. And like I'm the idiot too. So I think obviously Lululemon, whatever they did was terrific to break in across all different segments. You know, men, women, children, uh, athletic wear, uh, going out wear, but uh, Canada Goose needs to pivot as well. And if they can do that, maybe we've got the next Lululemon on our hands. If it's just going to be a winter coat uh, and accessories, then I don't know. Uh, obviously, uh, high end luxury is, is extremely hot in Asia and, and specifically China, and, and they love their products. And so, big runway of opportunity for Canada Goose. But for me, um, it, I, it's hard to come up with um, a valuation for it. I see it's trading at about 60 times earnings. Um, they still haven't scaled their business model. I'm worried about discounting. I'm worried about competitors. What about this moose knuckles that all of a sudden is popular? And so it's hard, it's hard to get your mind around luxury companies. I tend to stay away from fashion and fad companies, not saying Canada Goose is a fad, but uh, they're just not uh, the type of companies that we're comfortable investing in. So the valuation doesn't meet our, our model. Um, I, I really haven't done enough work to see if it's, you know, the business is totally scalable. Obviously, winter coats don't do very well in uh, warm countries. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quite limited in that Yeah, it's quite limited. Regard, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, out of a 30... We're, we're pretty, we're pretty um, concentrated here. We only own 30 stocks in our growth portfolio. And so to kick something out, to kick an Amazon out, to buy Canada Goose at 60 times earnings when I think Amazon is you know, still growing massively and so much potential in so many different markets and, and different industries, I, I got to say no at the moment. Yeah, no, I agree with all those points and it does become hard to justify when it is a fashion brand, when there's so many good opportunities trading at those very high valuations. Mm-hmm. It hasn't reached compounder status yet. The company's still in its infancy. So I think you are taking on a little bit of speculation risk. Um, you know, I prefer to buy companies that have had many, if I'm looking at fashion, I prefer, prefer to buy companies that have a, a long track record. So we do own something in the high end luxury and that's Ferrari. And Ferrari, the reason we like it is when you buy a Ferrari, you're not buying a luxury car. You're buying uh, entry to a, sp- a special club, a high-end club uh, that is 
that is only limited to a number of users. And once you get entry to that club, you can continue to progress higher and higher through the club by buying better Ferraris and more expensive Ferraris. And the $300,000 watches that they sell. Whatever they do, they're doing it it brilliantly. (laughs) So that's, and and this is a company that has obviously the history of Ferrari is, goes back. Incredible. Yeah, a very long time. Uh, So I feel more comfortable. And and there's resale value in, in a Ferrari. There's still there's resale value, I, I assume, in a Canada Goose jacket also. But, um, you know, I think Canada Goose has some challenges uh, as well with maybe some of the young people in terms of uh, uh, the animal products that are in the, in the clothing and how they're going to, uh, you know, how they're going to figure that out is, is, is remains to be seen. So um, that's that's my spiel on uh, Canada Goose. No, those are, <laughs> that's, that's very appreciated. So next we're going to talk about, you know, maybe a more boring name in, in for Canada, but... Uh, definitely a backbone of the economy, especially here in Ontario, which is Enbridge. Yeah. So Enbridge is interesting because everybody loves dividends, right? I, for whatever reason, Canadians are crazy about dividends. It's because we're crazy about the banks. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. So, and of course, owning the banks for the past 20, I, I read somewhere that had you owned, um, you know, the Canadian banks as a group over the last 25 years, you would have beaten Berkshire Hathaway, right? It's, exactly. Joe from Thunder Bay has beaten, uh, <laughs> Warren Buffett just by owning Royal Bank. Totally. And we have a few clients here who I got one guy who bought Royal Bank for, uh, for he got got some money on a wedding present and some savings and he put $25,000 in the Royal Bank 30 years ago and now it's worth two and a half million dollars. And he, he says, if I ever sell a share, it'll kill me. So, uh, you know, we, there's a lot of those success stories with the banks and that's phenomenal. So I, I understand why we love our, our uh, dividends here. Uh, a lot of Canadians are also obsessed with oil and gas also, but it's, it's a story for another day. Absolutely. But Enbridge, when I looked at it recently, I, you know, I, I, a little throw up in my mouth, to be honest with you, <laughs> in terms of the capital allocation, right? Uh, over the last three or four years, they've made a bunch of acquisitions. The balance sheet has expanded. But uh, they also issued a crap load of shares, right? So they diluted your interest. And they made all they made all these acquisitions, spent all this money, and at the end of the day, over the last five years, the cash flow per share has only increased not eight not eighteen percent, not per year, but eighteen percent total over the last five years. That's terrible. It's not good. No, it's terrible. So and I hear it every year. Well, this is finally Enbridge is gonna do it. You know, don't look out the last five years, look forward. But you know what? They haven't put the puck in the net. So I'm not sure I can trust the management to actually deliver on those results. Uh, so I get, we, we do have an income portfolio for our clients and we can't put everybody into growth stocks. We, we manage money for a lot of retirees, those living off those portfolios, those that are nervous. So we, we like solid dividend anchor tenants in our portfolio. But uh, Enbridge hasn't been one that has, to me, has delivered on its province promises. Uh, it's certainly been a home run investment prior to the last five years, but things change. So is it, does it have a scalable business model? No. Does it have great capital allocation? No. Can you buy it at a reasonable valuation? I guess so. Uh, obviously, the stock has done well recently because it's a, a bond proxy and with interest rates so low, people love dividends. So I guess if I owned it in an income portfolio, I would do a double check to see are they covering the dividend last i looked they weren't covering the dividend is that right i i honestly have looked at their stock for three years 
and almost never seen them cover the dividend mm-hmm. um, from a, a earnings or cash flow perspective. Yeah. So that's why I've just basically turned, never didn't even look into it anymore. I went seeing that because I mean, yeah, it's so easy to be attracted to locking in those 6% yields yes. in the oil and gas sector, but it just doesn't meet any of my check marks. No, neither, neither does it does it for me at the moment but uh, it's something we we always look at anytime you see a big fat dividend yield from a, a well-known company that has increases dividend every year and, and the fact that i think enbridge is giving guidance for strong dividend growth going forward but is it baloney or uh, you know dividend growth it, are they are they using the dividend reinvestment? I mean, I don't know for sure, but are they using the dividend reinvestment plan? Are they uh, raising debt to cover the dividend? Are they? Is it off? They're hoping they raise the dividend on, on because of you know they're having prayer sessions. I don't know. So <laughs> it's it difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand. So for for now, it, it's a no go for me. But um, you know, you can't. I think it's good for investors to know you can't invest by looking at the rear view mirror, right? You have to look out for it. It doesn't matter what happened to the stock five years ago. It doesn't matter what the results were five years ago. You have to come up with a reasonable assessment of what you think the future is going to be look, look like for the company. And companies can turn around and companies can improve. Uh, but over the last five years, based on the company's results and what its management's done, it certainly uh, it, it deserves deeper scrutiny before you jump into the pool on Enbridge. All right, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit here onto a stock that I know you have been bullish in the past on, which is Live Nation. I think that this company has an incredibly strong moat and is in a good space and is charging fees that almost when you when you go buy a concert ticket, yeah. it's almost like these fees are tax. You just assume that they're reasonable mm-hmm. and that it's just something that you have to pay. Um, so I, th- I think their ties with 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 music and with sporting and the the relationships that they have with those big big uh, behemoths is so strong. And uh, yeah, I really like this pick. So I'm yeah. interested to hear what your take on this one. It is a controversial business, right? So no one knows how much they charge you for the tickets. Uh, what are the fee embedded fees? Uh, yeah, you, uh, you 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 hit the nail on the head uh, in terms of. Um, it, it, you see it as a tax, but I, yeah, I always prefer companies where the customers love the product that they sell. But ultimately, you love going to see Adam Sandler or your favorite, you know, going to see Metallica, and you know, Live Nation has these guys locked up. It's such a brilliant business model. So you uh, you'll pay the fine, you'll pay the penalty because uh, that's you know, live live music. The experience is is where it's at, right? So. For example, uh, I and a few buddies flew to London, uh, England to watch a football game. It's an experiential uh, event, right? We went to go to London and we bought the tickets and, on StubHub. Uh, we, we bought food. We bought uh, jerseys. Is StubHub owned by Live Nation? No, it's, it's owned by eBay. But okay, they okay. Have, uh, you know, Ticketmaster has reselling as well. So okay, they're yeah, going to yeah. make money on selling yeah. the tickets. But you know, just give an example of – sure what people will do, right? And there's lots of people that will fly to another city to go see their favorite concert, to go see an event, and especially in, in this economy where we all certainly have enough stuff. Our, our bet is that as people get wealthier, and definitely the millennials, uh, will, will be spending more money on experiences. And then, of course, uh, as the uh, emerging economies like Asia and Latin America, as, as 
as the middle class gets wealthier, they'll also want to spend money on experiences. And Live Nation, brilliant uh, operators in, in the sense that they've purchased a lot of uh, venues they, around the globe. They own a lot of, uh, a lot of um, stadiums and arenas and relationships with them. Of course, they own Ticketmaster, which is essentially the only way to buy tickets uh, on a mass scale. And uh, they don't make any money actually putting on the concert, as you know. Uh, you know, if you're Beyonce and you put on a stadium show, pretty much Beyonce is getting all the money uh, for the tickets. It's Ticketmaster makes money charging fees, obviously, the convenience fees, and sponsorship, advertising, parking, and uh, maybe some of the concessions. And so it adds up. Their hope, their goal is uh, to get as much spend that NFL and NBA and uh, M- uh, you know the baseball what's NBA M- MLB MLB what's <laughs> getting late <laughs> MLB yeah, yeah. it's late so, in the night yeah late yeah so uh, apparently uh, people spend twenty thirty dollars per head at, at those games and, and those events whether it's on swag or concessions or parking whereas at concerts people are only sp- spending a quarter of that and their goal hope is over time people will be spending per person 20 to 30 dollars and and that's that's where the long-term opportunity lies for live nation as well as a global company they're either putting on concerts across the globe right so beyonce doesn't just do a concert in new york and la she does it across the globe and they can promote and sell advertising and sponsorship Obviously, it's it's a hit and miss business. Not every year your favorite artist is going to go on tour. I think Guns N' Roses was one of the biggest artists that went on tour the past couple of years. If they're not on tour this year, it could be uh, you know a weaker concert year for Live Nation. And but and a lot of the uh, older artists are getting older, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. how, how many okay. years they, can... <laughs> they got the they got the new ones on? Yeah, how many e- how good. many times can the Eagles go out on on tour? <laughs> I saw what's it, uh, I saw the Rolling Stones this summer. Yeah, they're almost eighty years old. Like, come on. Yeah. But they say that there's no end to the amount of um, stars and and YouTube people that are coming up. And the only way to make money now is if you're an artist is to go on tour, right? You make nothing from Spotify, nothing from YouTube music, and so that's what we're that's what we're betting on when we own Live Nation. It is a John Malone company. Uh, so John Malone is a, a major shareholder through his liberty. And John Malone has been one of you – know, many people don't know him, but he's been as good or better than Warren Buffett. And he's been investing in cable and media for years. He's got a business called Liberty. And it, John Malone has a specific style of running his businesses, which is don't show profits and, and lever up your balance sheet. Mm. And all of his companies are levered. All of his companies never really show profits you have to really do the math and the homework on them to to determine what the free cash flow generation is and that and that's the excitement about live nation so our insight on live nation is experience uh our, our, we believe people are going to be spending more money on live events around the globe and live nation is essentially i hate to use the word monopoly but they're they've monopolized both the ticket selling the, the stadiums and the artists and run by a genius uh, I think it's Canadian guy Michael Rapino. So, uh, kudos to the company. Yeah, no, it is. It is incredible. The name Ticketmaster. It's just. It is synonymous with getting tickets for an event. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the fees might be outrageous from a consumer perspective, but 
from a personal perspective, I feel like the tickets are illegitimate if I'm not purchasing mm-hmm. them on Ticketmaster. So the moat is just incredible. I think a lot of people feel negative about Ticketmaster because of the re- reselling and the scalping. And that's really something they, they can't control, right? So it's uh, some, th- some of the negative press about the company are, are things beyond their control. Absolutely. So let's transition to another really strong company with um, this one having tons of intellectual property, which is Disney. Yeah. Um, This company is very, very interesting and they're kind of going into all these different verticals and repurposing their intellectual content into different verticals. And I think that's what's really cool about Disney. So I'm interested to hear your, your take on Disney. So Warren Buffett calls Walt Disney like the, the reverse oil well. It, it just, anytime you need to need to make money, you go back to the oil and well and tap it and it explodes, right? So they bring out Beauty and the Beast cartoon. They bring out Beauty and the Beast uh, live. They have Beauty and the Beast uh, production shows, theater shows, and Broadway shows, and they just keep on milking. <laughs> and every time there's a new, uh, you know, the new generation, right? So when you have kids, you'll be showing them Disney stuff, and your kids will be showing their kids Disney stuff, and on and on and on, right? So um, just a, a brilliant ownership of the intellectual property. Um, we started buying Disney for clients in 2015, and it did nothing, right? It sat, we started buying it $90 a share. And two years later, it was $100 a share, right? And this is when the market's taking off. So we're looking like idiots. So like, what's going on? We, we, we didn't understand the, how cheap the company was. It was trading around 15 times earnings. This is a company that, in my opinion, has embedded in, embedded in the company one of the best businesses in the world, which is the theme parks, mm-hmm. right? So uh, you can Google the theme park uh, or the Disney uh, pricing power, the, the cost of the tickets, uh, and it's like gone straight up for like 50 years, beat, beaten inflation. And of course, once when you go to a Disney theme park, you don't just buy a regular ticket. You buy the Fast Pass, right? Exactly. <laughs> if you looked at the price of the tickets, you'd yeah. think that we'd have hyperinflation in yeah. the U.S. Wait till, you buy the, wait till you have four kids and you want to take them all on the Fast Pass. It's going to cost you $5,000 uh, for a weekend at Walt Disney. So, And then, of course, they're into the cruises. They're into uh, vacation and lodging. And, and any, any family that I've heard that's been on a Disney cruise or a Disney property, they, you know, Maybe the parents hate <laughs> going to the park, but you know the family loves it and enjoys it. And, the, and absolutely, the, yeah. so similar to Live Nation in the sense that global operations, a, a bet on experiences and emerging middle class around the globe. And unfortunately, with the current coronavirus, they've shut down uh, Shanghai Disney and Hong Kong Disney for a bit, which makes sense. But these are temporary issues. Um, so. We were excited to see Disney come out with their streaming product, and obviously, it's not a competing product to Netflix. It's 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 very nichey, very targeted, right? It's, they're only going to have Disney, Marvel, and uh, Star Wars stuff on it. They're not going to have the edgy uh, shows. There, there's never going to be a show on there with someone swearing or gratuitous sex. That's you know that's going to be left for Netflix. But you know, there's lots of kids in the world, Absolutely. and there's going to be more kids going forward, and so. I, I think if you're a family in North America and you want to have you know peace and quiet to check your phones for a few minutes, you put your kids in front of Disney Plus, and you'll be happy. And uh, I can see them having 
I think their goal was to have 60 mil, million subs in the in North America and 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 by 2023 I think they're going to smash that. Uh, you know, right now there's about in in the world there's 700 million homes that have uh, that have streaming access in, in, around the world, excluding China. I can see a substantial number of those, not only both having Netflix but Disney. And as and as Disney adds new programs and uh, shows more movies and puts more movies on onto their platform, it's going to attract more subs. And you know, kind of like a flywheel, as you go to the parks, you'll buy the baby Yoda because you saw the baby Yoda show and you'll want to see the next season of the baby Yoda. I don't even know what the show's called. Just the Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. should have just called it the baby Yoda. <laughs> the baby Yoda is great, by the way. I watched the show. Yeah. <laughs> He's so cute. Yeah. So, uh, I can see Braden. Um, we, we did a little analysis here and you know, we're not, we're not on the stock just cause we love the, the brands. We're, we're only cause we think there's potential. And, and we feel that uh, there's potential for $10 of earnings per share by 2024. And our feeling is uh, this is one of the world's greatest companies, deserves a high multiple, at least 25 times earnings. You know, if the, if the S&P 500 is trading at 19 or 20 times earnings, this is one of the world's greatest companies with intellectual property that's going to last and stand, in my opinion, the test of time. It should be worth 25 times earnings a few years down the road. 20, that gets you to $250 stock price from the $136, $140 that it's trading today. So lots of upside. Lots of upside, more dividends to come. And uh, once they start being profitable on the streaming, they're going to gush cash and they're going to have no, no, nothing else to do with that money but either continue to buy back stock or pay, raise dividends or look to make more intellectual property acquisitions. That's, that's really cool. And I like the analogy you used about, you know, using the oil and just continuing to inject cash into yeah. the business. I'm going to throw a curveball here on, on a company for you because I know it's another one that you've spoken about before with a lot of intellectual property and continuing to reuse that intellectual property. I saw that Call of Duty was the best selling game eight out of 10 years in mm-hmm. a decade. Well, we've purchased it every Activision year. Activision Blizzard, right? Yeah, we purchased a Call of Duty every year at my house. I got two boys, 15 and 12, and they like to shoot stuff. So um, <laughs> Call of Duty, yeah, is owned by Activision Blizzard, one of the top selling video games for like, how long, how many years in a row? Um, it's unbelievable yeah. how well this, yeah. their series have yeah. done. So yeah. it just goes to show you that boys and girls, mostly boys, like to shoot stuff. And uh, I think shooting stuff and killing things is, you know, it's it's not something that people like to do in Toronto. It's it's ubiquitous, right? Boys like to get their aggression out on video <laughs> games, and it's fun, right? So I play. I've played the crap out of the series when yeah. I was in high school. So I mean, I get it. And there, I'm 45. There are some people my age that play <laughs> video games too. Uh, you know, they like to come home from a tough day at work, or uh, they're not ready to go to bed, and they'll go uh, hunker down and play some Call of Duty for a couple of hours, and always buy the new one. So. Um, Activision, in our opinion, the sky's the limit in terms of the potential opportunities for their intellectual property, right? So they own Call of Duty. They own Diablo, which is like a role-playing fighting video game. They own Overwatch. They own StarCraft. They own Hearthstone, a card game. I mean, there's there's at least a good six uh, uh, quality franchises that they're just going to keep on milking for years and years. And uh, obviously now they're trying to get these games uh, as real sports, 
Mm-hmm. And I can't believe it. People go and watch these sports and pay money to watch these sports and there's sponsorship and they watch them online. And uh, so we're excited about the opportunity Call of Duty. The guy running it, Bobby Kotick, is a terrific allocator of capital. He, he's he been running uh, Activision for years and turned this company from you know uh, nothing to a multi-billion dollar market cap. And our our feeling is that right now, call uh, I keep calling the company Call of Duty, but Activision, <laughs> I think it has three hundred plus million daily users or monthly wow. users. Uh, they see uh, they see a path to a billion users, and that's with all the mobile gaming. You right? got it right, and right. so creating mobile versions of their game. They released uh, a mobile version of Call of Duty, and uh, the, I think it went pretty well. And uh, that's going to be the test for them going forward. They're looking to do a mobile version of Diablo, and then there's other other properties they can continue to release. And then every year they have to update them and release new versions. So huge potential. And their balance sheet is beautiful. There's tons of cash. So potential for them to look to acquire more intellectual property. So we haven't done well on this stock, by the way. <laughs> this has been a loser in our portfolio. Yeah, we, sure. yeah we bought it last summer. It lasts, I can't even remember. We're in 2020, so I think we bought it. <laughs> I think it's 2020. Yeah, I think it's 2020. We, we bought it late 2018. We actually bought it in the mid-70s. So for some clients, they're underwater. Some clients, because of the way we do things, we're always getting new clients. We're always putting cash to work. Some clients are well above water. But our from our initial purchase, we're down on this. But we're so excited about the future that we're not giving up. And this is one where the revenues are going to grow. The fundamentals are terrific. Trading at a reasonable valuation, so we're going to stick around. Yeah, that, those are all really good points. And the fact that you brought up mobile gaming, I was on a podcast last week and I brought up this mobile gaming craze. And I told the guys basically, I don't get it yeah. at all, but the numbers are just insane on how much it's growing compared to the rest of the sector. Mobile gaming is growing so, so fast. So, them being able to not even be on the surface of mobile gaming. Yeah. They can just take all of their games, make those applications on mobile. And, you know, I think those t- the top line, bottom line is going to grow at a very, very solid. Rate. I think so. You are taking obviously some some creative risk, right? Maybe the games aren't good. <laughs> they don't get sure. good rating. But Activision has a, a pretty good success ratio, pretty good hit ratio. And so I don't think you're taking a lot of risk. There. Especially when those those games have already been mm-hmm. so successful on other platforms. Yeah. Chances are, you know, they'll do well on another platform. So we're all addicted to our phones and most people do the two screen experience, right? Even when they're watching TV, they're looking at their phone or either, you know, doing social media or playing a game while watching TV. I don't know how people do it, but uh, it's overload. It it is. Yeah. (laughs) That's the world we're in. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to throw you for another curveball here because uh, because you did so well. there is a stock that I know that you did once recommend and that I personally own and still do own, and that is the auto parts manufacturer, Magna International. Mm-hmm. And the stock is very cyclical, and we don't even have to talk about Magna right now. Um, I just have a question what your position is on cyclicals, because you look at this business and you're like, the fundamentals are insane. Yeah. Um, you know, everything looks really good. Um, but we could be at the top of an auto sales cycle. Who's to say, right? Um, so I'm just 
curious about your position on cyclicals overall and, and, mm-hmm. and your stance on so the for, market. So for the most part on cyclicals, uh, I think you really need to own a good operator, right? So if you own a high quality company like uh, Amazon or Apple, you're, you don't have to worry so much about – every company cyclical, of course. But uh, you don't have to worry so much about the, the ups and downs of the business cycle to, versus a cyclical company, right? That's betting on a specific product that they're selling. But, uh, you know, when you own a good quality company, um, the long-term opportunities are huge. And for Magna, I can't say it's a great quality company, but I can say, you know, for the most part, they've run the business very, very well. But I don't know if the company has great capital allocation. I don't think the company uh, has a good dividend. Uh, it does have a good dividend, but I don't think the company has um, a good outlook for like growth potential yeah, in the payout. Yeah, exactly. So I, well, I guess I'm worried about cars going forward, right? I'm worried about autonomous vehicles. I'm worried about electric vehicles. I'm worried about uh, what Magna's role in place is going to be in the world. We have kind of seen a peak of car sales over the last couple of years. So it kind of goes against my uh, new way of investing in, in, in the sense that I'm not, I don't want to buy companies where there's, no, where there's no organic revenue growth. So you're absolutely right. The valuation on Magna is cheap, generating an enormous amount of free cash flow. Um, but when do you sell it, right? So Magna's always been a cheap stock. So when, when do you get out? Do you get out when it's trading at 10 times earnings? Do you get out when it's trading at six times earnings? I don't think Magna is ever going to trade at 20 times earnings. So, you know, things have been the best they've been in, in terms of the car sales the past couple of years. You probably should have gone out two years ago because it looks like sales are now on the decline. So that, that's the hard thing about um, a cyclical company. So if I'm going to own a cyclical company, I really want to own a company that is uh, run by an, a, a great operator, someone who has experience allocating capital smartly, someone who has um, uh, maybe makes smart acquisitions and, and grows the business. You know, I'm thinking of like a company like Transforce, right? That's a cyclical company in trucking. And that company... They seem to know when to buy distressed assets. They seem to know when to get rid of them. They seem to know when to acquire and get out, when they buy back stock like crazy, when they raise the dividend. And there's a big ownership stake by the, the CEO. I do think that the stock is undervalued in the sense that it is not positioned as a tech play mm-hmm. that I think it is. I think it's a fairly strong tech play in the computer that is the car these days. I agree. Because they own about 50 engineering and technology centers that don't even produce mm-hmm. any cars. Mm-hmm. So I think that is underpriced in, in the in the market. However, I do see what you're saying, you know, how we've seen a pretty much flat line in auto sales and you can see it reflective in their income statement. That's right. So, we had a we in the last three years Magna's revenues have gone nowhere, right? So absolutely. the earnings have been growing exclusively from uh, buying back stock, which they're buying a lot of stock a back. A lot of stock. Right, so they and they really don't have anything to do with the money, right? Uh, they could make acquisitions in, I, I guess, autonomous vehicles, but they're going to just lose money on that stuff, right? On those bets. So uh, they're going to let the OEMs make those risks and then exactly. hopefully develop the parts for them. Exactly. So I, I think it's an interesting play. I, I like what you said about the technology and no question, right? My car beeps at me nonstop. Like it's talking to me all day long. 
Yeah. So it's and it's now become a computer, right? So more technology is going to obviously go into cars going forward. And if Magna has the right relationships and the right technology, it should benefit. So let's talk about one more company before I let you go, which the moat, I mean, it's become a verb when you use the internet, which is Alphabet, Mm -hmm. obviously the parent company of Google. And they're similar to, in my opinion, like a Facebook that can use their insane user base and try out new things. And essentially, I think it's cheap if you just look at it from the search business alone. So I'm interested on your take on that. Uh, so yeah, we, I own Google. Clients have owned it for quite a long time. We continue to buy more. You know, here's a company that I think has grown revenue at 20% a year, many, many quarters in a row of 20% revenue growth, even with a trillion dollar market cap. Insane. Unbelievable. Yeah. And trading, I think 20, slightly over 25 times earnings. Or you can buy Procter and Gamble, which is growing at two to three percent revenue growth a year for the same earnings multiple. Yeah, for the same earnings multiple. So obviously, you can make the a judgment saying, "Well, we'll probably be still be using Tide fifty years from now. Who knows if we'll be searching stuff on Google?" Which is fair. So that's but a company growing twenty percent revenues at uh, at that multiple seems quite low, and so. Uh, I don't think it's now. I think it's not a, a, the cheapest stock. It's, it's certainly been cheaper in our in our lifetime. But uh, we would consi- continue to buy it here because I what one of the things I'm really excited about is the new the new CEO has now got carte blanche. Right, Sergey and Larry, the two founders, have stepped aside. They're not going to be running or operating the company. And uh, Sundar, I think his name is Sundar, uh, is now sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 got carte blanche in terms of how to operate the business. And so the biggest gripe that investors have had over the past few years is the investments in these other bets, right? These moonshots. Mm-hmm. None of them have paid off yet, right? They, their biggest one, which is has potential, is Waymo, which is the investment in autonomous vehicles, which could be unbelievably massive or never work out. For me, I just don't know how uh, uh, autonomous cars are going to work in the snow and the ice, but (laughs) that's another story. Um, Why I'm excited about it is if he's going to pare back those investments in other bets, if he's going to take a more focused approach on capital allocation. I think Google has $100 billion net in cash, so you could could see a dividend very shortly on Google. You could see massive share buybacks. And you could see uh, a slowing down of those investments in the other bets, which falls right to the bottom line. So I don't think the market is properly pricing the explosive earnings potential just from share buybacks and a more conscientious approach to capital allocation. Uh, Meanwhile, the search business is just like one of the greatest businesses in the world. Uh, You know, you want to be at the top of the search business. We pay for it here at Baskin Wealth Management. We, we try and, you know, when people Google Wealth Management Toronto, we've paid to be at the top of the front on, for our company and, and it works, right? You get recognition and for a lot of companies selling a product, this is a must spend. And it's, it's absolutely a must spend. You know, the, the, the saying goes, they hide the dead bodies on the third page of Google. Yeah. So you need to be, if you want any organic growth online, you need to be paying for the service yeah. and it's essential part of any digital marketing strategy is using Google AdWords. So I've listened to uh, some analysis on the business and some people think it's extremely discounted even right now from a cash flow perspective, 
just on the search business. And this doesn't wow. include the, this doesn't even include the hundred billion in cash or the other, you know, verticals that they yeah. can easily enter. Well, what in. about YouTube? Like just a monster. Exactly. Right. So I have a 12 year old son. What does he do all day? He makes YouTube videos. He want he wants to be a YouTube famous person and monetize, I hope he, I hope he is. <laughs> and monetize his YouTube videos and his YouTube page. And that's what interests him. And so do all his friends and they that's love great. watching YouTube videos. That's what the gener, you know, that his generation is interested in for the most part. So, um, I see Google just uh, doing what it's doing. I don't think it's going to continue to grow revenues at 20% uh, a year going forward. I mean, the law of large numbers obviously has to catch up with it. At a trillion in market cap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think you're still going to see double-digit revenue growth, double-digit earnings. And with some smart capital allocation, reinvesting those into things that actually make money, uh, I think you're going to be a pretty happy camper uh, buying Google even here at you know close to $1,500 a share. Well, Barry, I got to say thank you so much for taking the time. Your outlook on the market, I love the way you look at companies long term and focus on the quality is really impacted how I've looked at businesses over the last two oh, years wonderful. Watching, watching your segment. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk not only to me, but also all the listeners of the Canadian Investor. Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks for having me.